Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Talks between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to avert a first ever U.S. debt default on June 1 have stalled as lawmakers have left Washington for the Memorial Day weekend as Key lawmakers also urged Defense Secretary Austin to investigate defense contractors for price gouging, arguing that at a time when the defense budget is at an all-time high, contractors shouldn't be making ill-gotten gains. Ukraine-backed Russian partisans raided Russia as Moscow denies a fire at its defense ministry headquarters, and Wagner Group's Yevgeny Prigozhin says... The stalled war effort could spark a new revolution in Russia. Washington says Kiev launched the recent drone attack on the Kremlin. The White House says China hacked Guam's critical infrastructure, allowing Microsoft to release source code to help agencies, businesses, and allies improve their defenses. Takeaways from the G7 Quad and Pacific Island leaders meetings last week as the U.S. Navy works to counter Iranian piracy in the Gulf. And the president finally selected Air Force Chief General C.Q. Brown as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to succeed General Mark Milley, who will be retiring. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome uh, back to uh, the program, and thanks very much for making time before everybody breaks up for the Memorial Day uh, weekend. Uh, Michael, both sides uh, have been saying that they want to avert a debt default, but no deal and lawmakers are out of town. June 1 is the default uh, deadline. Where are we? What's going on? And are we going to have a deal or are we going to have actually a selective debt default, right? Call the government slowdown. Well, we may have a combination of the above. So uh, last week, I was very optimistic about where we are. Uh, and right away, uh, misplaced hours, optimism, misplaced optimism. I am still optimistic. But <laughs> shortly after our last, uh, last show, things fell apart. Uh, where negotiations just stopped uh, while Biden was still out of town for the G7 summit. But McCarthy and Biden spoke on Sunday night uh, and got things back on track. So their uh, negotiators then started meeting later that day. On Monday, however, uh, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, Kay Granger, announced that all her full committee markups now were going to be canceled. Because uh, we mentioned previously, subcommittee markups had taken place on the veterans bill, uh, legislative branch, Homeland Security and Agriculture, and they were canceled because of the negotiations, but also uh, the thin margins the Republicans have to actually pass these bills out of committee. And one of the members was out of town sick and they didn't think they could get these bills passed. Uh, the next day on Tuesday, uh, McCarthy told his conference that a deal is nowhere close. Uh, and then he accused the White House of trying to add new things like Medicare and Social Security and prescription drug prices and put them back on the table. Uh, and McCarthy, you know, acknowledged that, look, he doesn't have to give me everything I want, but he drew two red lines on Tuesday. One, that he will not agree to raise taxes to generate more revenue. And two, he will not support a clean debt ceiling. Now, Wednesday, negotiations continued, and it was uh, revealed earlier in the week that the Democrats then had actually agreed to a spending freeze 
at FY23 levels, which is really, I think, an extraordinary concession. But McCarthy seemed to draw a third red line where he insisted that the U.S. must spend less money next, next fiscal year uh, than they did the previous fiscal year. So uh, the, if, if, when, there, when there is a compromise, I'm not going to say if, it will be somewhere just below the FY23 numbers. Now, on Thursday, uh, House Republican leadership uh, really changed the tune and became, again, very uh, confident that they will have a deal with the White House very shortly uh, to raise the debt limit and, and pare back spending. Uh, and they expect this compromise to come together uh, in the next few days, uh, prob- possibly uh, in the beginning of the weekend or before the weekend. Uh, and that this debt limit hike will raise the debt ceiling through 2024. This will not be a one year hike. It will take us uh, through the election. Uh, now, uh, they also feel that they'll have a majority of their conference voting for it. But the key there is a majority. Right. So right. they're going to need Democratic votes to pass this. And a lot of Democrats are very unhappy with where this, these discussions are going. Uh, because they, it's it's the antithesis of where they thought this uh, was all going to end up, right? That they're, it, as you said, the more the White House conceded, the more the Republicans have asked for, the more they alienate their own caucus. Exactly. And uh, they are very unhappy with this package because it's more slanted to what the Republicans want. And, uh, you know, I actually had dinner with uh, four Democratic members of Congress on Wednesday night. And obviously this was a, a key part of our conversation. And they asked me what I thought. And I said, look, I think we're going to have a deal uh, by the weekend and you guys will be back here voting on it next week. And they all questioned whether they could support uh, this deal and how tough it would be. And we hear Democrats still talking about options like a discharge petition and the 14th Amendment. And now many voicing very public regrets, things that we've talked about before, not raising the debt ceiling last year when they had full control of the government. They should have done it then. Uh, and then also betting on the Republicans' dysfunction, uh, that they couldn't get anything passed, and they never had a plan B to fall back on anything if they did get something passed. And there's a lot of regrets uh, that they did not uh, negotiate sooner. But that's too late now. Yellen affirmed again this week that June 1st is the default date, but a lot of the Republicans still do not accept that date uh, as a real number. Uh, Now, if a deal is finalized by the weekend, uh, it will still take two days to draft legislation. And then members of the House have 72 hours to review uh, the text of an agreement. So if things get going and those things happen and it passes the House and the Senate, by the time it gets to the president for signature, it would probably be June 3rd or 4th, which is right at the edge, right after uh, the date. Now, that's if things go perfectly. At the same time, we have Senator now Mike Lee uh, saying that uh, any debt limit deal without substantial spending reforms will not face smooth sailing in the Senate and that he will use every procedural tool at his disposal to impede a debt ceiling deal that does not contain substantial spending and budgetary reforms. So that's a real problem because the Senate relies on unanimous consent to get a lot of its work done. At the same time, on Thursday, 35 uh, House Republican members of the Freedom Caucus sent a letter to McCarthy making new demands, saying that they want border security now added to this deal. Uh, They are also uh, demanding that uh, Yellen come and and show her math as to why June 1st is the date. Um, They they say that it's a manufactured crisis of June 1st, and they want uh, a bill to pass immediately that would rescind COVID money and the money for the IRS Uh, So that would push the debt ceiling past June to give them more time to strike a much tougher deal. Now, I still think we're going to get through this, and I think we are going to have a deal, and I think they will be voting on it next week. But I did say previously that we're not going to get through this unscathed. And we've seen already Fitch threatening that we are uh, our our credit can be downgraded again. 
Uh, we've seen the stock market go way down again this week. Uh, and the bond markets are being rattled, which is raising interest rates, which is also going to uh, cost the government more money. Uh, and there are serious implications here for defense. The NDA markup, uh, they were hoping that they could begin subcommittee markup the week after Memorial Day recess. That is now not going to be the case. That continues to be delayed. And from what I'm hearing, too, that top line number for defense is not going to be above or well above the president's budget request. We were talking earlier about possibly 15 billion in uh, the Armed Services Committee above the president's budget. That seems to be no longer the case. Um, and, uh, and, and that that piece that 60 Minutes aired uh, last Sunday uh, that, uh, you know, that, that said that uh, military contractors are price gouging. It's, it's felt widely in this town that that piece was timed to come out, you know, during during these uh, the heat of these budget negotiations and was coordinated with folks that were unhappy that defense was being spared. Um, and, I, well, and I should and I should point out, right, that uh, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Grassley, Elizabeth Warren, Mike Braun, Ron Wyden, Right. You could argue a pretty bipartisan bunch who are raising uh, concerns. Uh, right. I mean, as uh, 60 Minutes reported, well, uh, right. DOD can no longer expect Congress uh, or the American taxpayer to underwrite record military spending while simultaneously failing to account for the hundreds of billions it hands out every year to spectacularly profitable private corporations. And the note, you know, they pointed out that a Stinger missile cost twenty five thousand in 1991. And now that there's a single source for it costs 400,000, right? I mean, obviously this is their math and everybody can make all sorts of uh, different arguments uh, on that, but it's, it's making an impact. It is. And I received, um, you know, text messages from both Republicans and Democrats after that piece came out. So it had its desired uh, effect. Um, but, you know, I also did talk to several defense contractors, um, you know, the primes and I won't name any of them, but they all did speak the 60 minutes. And they all felt that that piece was well written, uh, was written well before uh, they came to interview them and they did not use any of the information that they gave them for, for the piece. Uh, so, and, and you know, I know it, there are some Democrats and Republicans in, in the Senate, as you mentioned, that want to investigate this, but I wouldn't really call them a bipartisan bunch. I, I don't really consider Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren friends of the defense industry and, and, and bipartisan by any means, but it's all a result of that 60 Minutes piece. Well, I'm, but I'm saying Chuck, Chuck Grassley is also uh, not some mm -hmm. uh, cream cream puff. Neither is uh, Mike Braun, right? So right. that's the right. that's the only reason why I well, put it in there. Even though uh, I think everybody uh, understands what what I think is interesting is, with all due respect, this is a manufactured crisis. Congress passed this legislate. All these spending measures have been passed by Congress. You just don't like it that you didn't pass those spending measures, and you're trying to use the debt, uh, you know, a debt default as a vehicle to unwind spending that you disagree with, right? I, I know no Republican member is going to vote to unwind tax cuts, uh, right? Or, uh, you know, um, which which is, is spending uh, in, in another fashion. Let's uh, talk quickly about Tommy Tuberville. Uh, president has finally named CQ Brown as the, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And yet uh, Tuberville is doubling down and saying, I am not going to authorize military promotions now something like 250, including some of the senior most jobs, including uh, for the chairman, uh, including for the new chief of staff of the army. Obviously, we're going to need a new chief of staff of the United States Air Force. Uh, the vice is widely expected to fleet up uh, in that case, as well as combatant command jobs and major commands. Where do we stand with this? And Dove, I want to bring you in here uh, in, in a moment because you wrote uh, thoughtfully in the Hill about this. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, we're nowhere uh, compared to you know, last week. We're nowhere. This week, we're nowhere. And, you know, I think Washington can only respond to one crisis at a time. And I don't think we're going to get anywhere on this until we uh, resolve the debt ceiling issue. 
and then I think people can turn their attention to it. But I think that's going to be uh, still a tough road to hoe. Um, Dove uh, corrected me that it's 186, not 250. So I apologize uh, for my math. Uh, Dove, sort of give us give us your sense on this and also uh, the kind of guidance that's going out to the Pentagon, right? I mean, I think the Treasury has now started giving government departments uh, a little bit of guidance at the top time we talked to Mike McCord uh, last week. Um, we did not have that uh, guidance. Kind of walk us walk us through where we are and how do you how do you see this working out? And as well, give us a, a kind of quick commentary on on the Tuberville matter. And, and Jim and Patrick, really quick, want to get your sense on how all of this is being perceived by our European allies uh, as well as in the Asia Pacific, right? Because there was this sense that we would sort of resolve this, even though there were some folks who were looking at this and saying, "Wow, you know, what happens if they don't resolve this?" And it looks like we're not going to be fish nor fowl. Go ahead, Dove. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, on the price gouging, because uh, after all said and done, when I was comptroller and every comptroller has the defense auditors uh, under them who really scare the, the hell out of uh, out of contractors and catch a lot of this stuff. Uh, this if the 60 minutes program uh, had somebody uh, who was a senior Pentagon type from Shay Assad, who was the director of uh, procurement policy. Right, exactly. Who was, in fact, in the research and engineering shop. Uh, And he knows very well that when you have what's called a firm fixed price contract where the the government, the department in this defense, in this case, agrees to a price. And if the contractor comes in uh, and is able to save operating expenses, it's going to get a bigger profit. And oh, by the way, if the operating expenses go up, it gets a smaller profit. So, you know, the 60 minutes thing wasn't exactly clear about either the audit agency uh, or this. And by the way, um, there have been cases uh, last year, there was this outfit called Transdime, and they reimbursed the Pentagon when they were nailed. So uh, I think it's very important to be a little more balanced, 60 minutes. Uh, I, I remember going back to the Weinberger years, 60 minutes had a reputation in the five-sided building of never being supportive of defense. And they've been pretty consistent over the last 45 years on that one. Um, on Mr. Tuberville, uh, yeah, I've got a piece coming out today. Uh, basically, you know, this, both Schumer and McConnell are, are not supporting him. I think the, the real problem quite frankly, is that uh, you've got a situation where the senators are basically uh, following a a tradition of professional courtesy. And I would argue, and I argue in my piece, that this is so extraordinary that they ought to, you know, they can shut this down with cloture. There's no problem with that, doing that, or just with a vote. Uh, You know, it's one thing if you're blocking one or two or five or 10 individuals, but when you're blocking everybody, Uh, you are not only damaging the individuals, you're damaging their families. They don't know where they're going to go to school next year. They don't know where they're going to buy their food next year. They don't know where they're going to live next year. They don't deserve that. The children certainly don't deserve that. And so this is uh, something that I think the Senate needs to crack down on now without uh, undermining its its overall tradition of courtesy when somebody wants to put a hold on 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 a promotion or an appointment. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate that. Um, I, the one thing I want to point out is, um, r- r- right. Um, 
this is an issue that Shea has been talking about for some time. He was at Raytheon before he went into uh, back into government uh, service, and so is somebody who knows um, a lot about this. Uh, and you know, the challenge is this was exactly what happened at the end of the Reagan administration that turned a lot of people against defense spending at the time that we did Graham Rudman uh, in order to address the debt the last time, right? Yeah, the whole well, notion of six hundred dollar toilet yeah. seats and twelve hundred dollar right. hammers. And that's right. And what they've done since then, of course, is tighten up controls. Um, there have been reimbursements. You know, there's a thing that's called unallowable. And when the, the audit agency turns around and says, you've, you've claimed something and it's not allowable, companies have to pay it back. Now, the problem, right. reason people don't understand this is because the audit agency comes after the deal is done. Right. right though is they have to reserve a bunch of money that they can't spend out of fear that the audit agency will take it away all i'm saying is that the 60 minutes thing did not present the entire picture and they've got a frankly a reputation of not presenting the entire picture uh which which is unfortunate because i think that folks uh, began to regard the program as as somewhat more fair-minded although there are those who would look at you know the piece uh, that they recently did on the Navy in the Indo-Pacific as being um, uh, a, uh, you know, a, an accurate representation of some of the challenges uh, and the importance, uh, certainly, of the force uh, in the region. And about how the department is getting ready? Well, uh, quite frankly, it's going to depend on how long this thing drags on. Uh, you know, Michael's scenario uh, means that they lose a week or two. That's not so terrible. What they're going to do is prioritize, first of all, paying the troops, paying the benefits, and after that, prioritizing uh, operations, because that's critical. We can't stop our operations and we can't not pay our troops, uh, which means that the longer this goes on, the, the bigger the hit against procurement, against research, uh, against all the things that we need in order to stay ahead of the Chinese. Um, but they will uh, be able to move monies around. I mentioned this on last week's program. Bob Hale was brilliant in moving money so that the last government shutdown did not affect virtually anything in the department. This is going to be tougher. But uh, again, I have a lot of confidence in Mike McCord that he will ensure that people get paid and that the systems continue to operate. Um, and just a quick word from our sponsors before I go to uh, Jim and to Patrick. Uh, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Jim, uh, your sense on how, your, your, how Europeans uh, and Patrick, how Asians uh, are folks in the Indo-Pacific uh, are, are looking at this? I'd debacle. say there's, I'd say there's three groups of people in Europe and looking at this debacle. The first group, uh, they're not really paying attention. This is, you know, this isn't affecting their everyday life. Uh, it's over their heads anyway. And so they're, they're just motoring on. The second group, uh, would be people who are in the government who've been around and they, are a cynical bunch and they say this is typical US uh, and they're not gonna pay attention to it thinking that at the end of the day, a deal will be cut and everything will be fine. I think a lot of the American people are that way too. But then there's a third group, a third group that might be a little deeper thinking, a little wiser uh, who are saying, you know, this is just another part of the narrative of the US uh, just uh, losing, losing its mind. This is another example of, of not just the U.S. 
drifting away, uh, but the U.S. Uh, kind of losing that dominant position that they had in terms of leadership, in terms of showing the way to the other struggling democracies, of being that Reagan uh, shining city on the hill, that this is just another drip, drip, drip of the erosion of the U.S. narrative and the U.S. Uh, leadership. And, and, and I think that's what that third group thinking that that's what we have to be worried about because they're losing, they're losing confidence, they're losing faith, uh, and they are, they are becoming less uh, ready to follow U.S. leadership if they feel that, in fact, we're beginning to implode. Patrick? Well, Jim makes good points, but you know, in general, uh, folks in the Indo-Pacific are not going to care about this until we default. Um, if we default, then they're all going to be pulling their hair out, and it will be a confirmation of American dysfunction and decline uh, along that third school of thought that Jim just outlined. But unless that happens, most people are not going to pay it too much mind, is my my guess. Uh, Jim, let me uh, go to you on obviously a big week uh, in uh, the war. Um, fascinating week, in fact, right? Russia uh, says it took uh, Bakhmut. Uh, Wagner fighters have withdrawn, so it's not clear exactly what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, just days after Washington agreed to train Ukrainians uh, to fly F-16s that will be supplied by other alliance members, Ukraine-backed Russian partisans attack Russia uh, and in fact penetrated uh, Russia and caused a degree of mayhem around Belgorod for uh, a couple of days. Uh, Moscow saying that they did so with U.S. weapons. Uh, no confirmation yet on whether that's true or not. In what appears to be a shot across Kiev's bow, U.S. intelligence agencies leaked the story they believe Ukraine was behind the Kremlin drone attack. Uh, Washington has said it doesn't want any U.S. weapons used against uh, Russia. Um, and, and then we've got Dmitry Prigozhin, excuse me, Yevgeny Prigozhin saying that the bungled war is going to cause a revolution like in 1917, and it's time for the country to turn into North Korea for a couple of years, if that's what's necessary to win. Start us off with the attack. Do the attacks within Russia, especially if U.S. systems were used, change how change Washington's vector of support for Ukraine in any way? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I, I think, I think first of all, I think that this is still something very murky. I'm not sure that we really know uh, who's who in the zoo here. Uh, who was who ordered whom to do that, uh, or or was this some Russian red flag? I mean, I, I I think there's a lot of mystery to this still, and I'm not sure I'm ready. A to Russian false flag, right? That that they could have just yep. seized a couple of Humvees. But, you know, stage them and yeah. all of a sudden it's, yeah. Well, yeah, because they know that's a tender spot for the U.S., this idea of Ukraine crossing into Russia. So maybe the Russians with that false flag, I called it a red flag. Sorry about that. But it is a red flag, too. Uh, but yeah, I know exactly. It's true. It's it's a it's you know, I think it's just murky and it's a bit of a sideshow to my mind. But 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 that aside, I don't think that's going to have an impact. Uh, in Washington. And I'm not sure that about the U.S. intelligence agencies releasing that as a shot across the bow, you know, releasing that info about the Kremlin attacks. I at least I hope that's not true, because the last thing we need to do is have the U.S. and Ukraine throwing rocks at each other. Uh, you know, right. I, 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 you know, I don't know what that is. Uh, both the, the drone incident as well as the Humvee stuff that we were just talking about. It's a lot of murky stuff and it's distracting us from what's really important. And that is making sure Ukraine has what it needs for this for this offensive. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Bakhmut. Uh, you know, that's another murky situation right now. I 
I, uh, you know, Progosin should could be saying, yeah, I'm withdrawing from there. Maybe he is and maybe he isn't, number one. Number two, if he is, then there's some probably some very scared, uh, very young um, draftees who are Russian draftees who will be going in to take their place and God help them because Ukraine, my understanding is they've, they have flanked Bakhmut. Uh, they're in the hills above Bakhmut. Um, and so uh, this thing isn't over yet. But I, but but again, the big game here is the, the is the offensive. The big game is making sure that if there's going to be a meat grinder grinding anything, it's these Russian draftees, um, and also uh, making sure that uh, Ukraine has the ammunition, particularly uh, of what it needs. Now, the Germans have just released a package of equipment um, that included some some more leopards, some martyrs, some things like that. So. I was happy to see that. And I raised this only because Germany doesn't get a lot of kudos. And, but I think this is something we should stand up and applaud because that's the kind of thing um, that they're going to really need, particularly as the follow through on whatever offensive is going to take place. There'll be a second wave, if you will. And, and I think this equipment could be part of that. So, so I was glad to see that. And, and again, on the F-16s, you mentioned the F-16s. Um, I hope that the the European F-16 consortium hurries up and identifies the aircraft and then gets the refurbishment or whatever needs to be done before they're ready. I hope they get that on the road pretty quick because that's the one long pole in the tent that not a lot of people have talked about. These F-16s have gone through midlife update. They're an older block, as you know. Um, they're going to probably need some uh, refit before they're given to the Ukrainians, and that can take a while. So I hope that they're working that right now. Um, and... Uh, uh, and of course, getting the training underway as well. So, so you know, let's see what happens about the uh, uh, the uh, Humvees and the drones over the Kremlin. And but let's don't be distracted by it. Let's keep our 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 uh, attention on continuing to supply Ukraine with the stuff they're going to need for that offensive because it's around the corner. And and I think I can agree right. with Ukraine. They don't have what they need right now. But the Ukrainians first, uh, without lawyering uh, for uh, Kiev, have been very careful about not using American weapons to attack into Russia. They've, you know, they may have used, you know, intelligence, uh, but it's been their own platforms they're using. And at the end of the day, I don't fault them. Russia attacked them. They should be free to be able to attack and cause as much mayhem uh, in, in, in Russia um, as uh, possible. And, and regarding the Germans, no, they don't get uh, as much uh, credit. And we've been discussing this on the business podcast, how the Germans have become number two in aid now uh, right. in, in total value after the United States, uh, I think even surpassing Britain, uh, which has done uh, an incredible job. Let me just ask you quickly about Prigozhin's comments uh, about the likelihood of, of sort of a 1917 style uh, disintegration, right? I mean, his point is, we've got to double down. You know, he was calling out you know, Shoigu's daughter, you know, I think, you know, was in seen in Dubai recently uh, and saying, you know, the, the leading families, they have to make sacrifices. They have to bury their sons. And only then, well, you know, I mean, it was sort of a, I, I think, vaguely unhinged uh, statement, but he's become quite good at that. Is there anything underlying in there, right? I mean, an allegation that the defense minister, that somebody had firebombed the defense uh, ministry, uh, Moscow denied that. Uh, but also other acts around the country of, of sabotage. You hear uh, rumors of that and, and that, you know, according to the partisan groups, Russian partisan groups, uh, the, the unrest is, is greater than maybe the administration realizes. I mean, what's, what's your sense on that? 
Well, I, I've heard of these instances too. I really don't, I don't put a whole lot of stock in them. I don't think it's near enough to have much of an impact on anything. And, and, and it's, and again, it's kind of murky who's doing it and why, but I think for Progozin, he's a very interesting character in the sense that he certainly gets away with saying a lot of things. He gets, he gets close to saying stuff about Putin, but doesn't quite cross the line. And I think, I think Putin is using him to, uh, to poke at the Russian military. I think he's, right. I think Putin uh, is, is, is uh, concerned about challenges coming out of the higher ranks of the Russian military and having Prigozhin act like a, an attack dog, uh, like he's doing is something that uh, Putin likes. He wants to, he's, right. he's got tension going on there on purpose. And, uh, you know, they can go be North Korea if they want. I, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. But uh, but I think I think uh, Prigozhin is a he's 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 an evil one. I tell you, he's he provides a little comic relief uh, what he has to say. And we'll just have to see how this fits into the political dynamic in the Kremlin among the elite and the, among the military and, and this type of thing. Right. It's it really stirring the pot. Um, I, I should point out, he also pointed out, I was never Putin's chef. I don't know how to cook. I'm Putin's butcher, uh, which makes it a, a little more terrifying considering that he lost some 20,000 uh, troops in the Battle of, of Bakhmut. Uh, so I don't exactly think of himself as a, think of him as a strategic genius. Um, Patrick, you've been very uh, patient, and there's a lot of stuff that happened in the Asia Pacific, and I want to get uh, your uh, sense on that. Uh, Mike Gallagher and uh, Raja Krishnamurthy uh, of the Chinese uh, of the China uh, Commission were eager uh, to visit uh, the Asia Pacific and and certainly visit uh, Taiwan. And unfortunately, that congressional delegation has been called off because members are on short notice, uh, as Michael uh, pointed out at the at the top of the show. Um, we. Let's first start with the Chinese hack against Guam's uh, infrastructure. Um, obviously, it looks like it was uh, focused on espionage, but clearly it was intelligence gathering for a future operation, a disruptive operation, as we feared uh, the Chinese would try to cut our communications link. Uh, obviously, Guam uh, is home to Anderson Air Force Base, the biggest air base uh, in the Pacific, and then uh, also a very important submarine base and, and just a forward uh, logistics hub for the United States. Um, Microsoft has disclosed the source code on that. Um, this comes as Washington was trying to improve relations with Beijing, strangely in the wake of Beijing's fury over the downing of a spy balloon that was flying over the United States. I mean, it's, it's just absurd. How significant is this attack um, ultimately? And what does this tell us, if anything, that we didn't know before this attack? Well, it's another indicator that the Chinese are improving their cyber warfare capabilities, and they're going to be able to go well beyond intelligence gathering to prepping the battlefield for major disruption of any operation, especially in the South China Sea or over Taiwan in the future. That's the implication. It's it's obvious. It's hiding in plain sight, if you will. But it's very important that here Microsoft discovers back in February when they're uh, roosting around about the spy balloon and it's prompting greater vigilance. Uh, throughout communications channels, Microsoft happens upon this malware in the Guam telecommunication system planted by Volt Typhoon, a Chinese state hacking group that's been active since at least 2021. Uh, and they create a web shell. So that creates a permanent backdoor in this critical communications uh, in Guam. And, and this is something they could replicate in Hawaii and, you know, in, in forces throughout uh, the region. Um, and if, if so, uh, it would fall into question our ability to respond in a timely fashion to a crisis. 
Um, and I think the signal here is that China is prepping the battlefield. They're trying to make sure they have that type of operational enabler um, for their own capability should they use force to get their way uh, in Taiwan or, 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 or in the region. Um, and I think that's that's the main lesson. Now, it's good that we've uh, uncovered this, and it hopefully leads to yet another round of improvements of how we strengthen critical infrastructure. It, it is important that the, the Five Eyes Nations uh, intelligence uh, community put out a 24-page, uh, you know, uh, document saying, look, we, this is the advisory and this is a cluster of activity. It wasn't just right. it wasn't just this one. So we're, we have to be on our guard and this is not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. Um, I, I want to get to the Codell issue as well as uh, the G7 and the Quad and the Pacific Island takeaways. But but really quickly, why is Washington trying so hard to improve relations, uh, Patrick, with Beijing, given the absurdity of, you know, the contrived absurdity of Beijing's anger that we shot down their spy balloon that was spying on us, right? And they sort of cut off links in, in the wake of that. Why are we trying so hard to sort of resume dialogue or anything? I mean, it's just outrageous. You were spying against the United States. We caught you red-handed. We shot down your balloon. It wasn't a research balloon. Uh, it was a sophisticated, atmospheric spycraft. Well, uh, you know, uh, since at least the age of Machiavelli, we've learned to separate uh, morals from interests. And the interest is we've got major power in China. We have to deal with them. Um, and uh, that's what they're trying to do at some level. Now, others think they can go well beyond that and create guardrails. And the Chinese are basically saying we're not that interested in guardrails. Um and their new ambassadors just come to town at this uh, difficult time. And, and here you've got the president at the tail end of the G7 meeting uh, arguing that uh, a thaw is coming. And yet there's no indication that the Chinese are really serious about um, conceding anything that we're asking for in a serious way. But there is still an interest in both Beijing and Washington to put a floor under uh, trade and to put a floor under the perception of how they behave regionally and globally and how they convince others that they are responsible major powers. And I think that's where this competition continues to go. We just saw a, a number of other people leave the administration, right? Or uh, So Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman is leaving, partly right. over this issue about uh, uh, you know the Uyghurs and, and, and China and human rights. Um, Rick Waters, who was the first ever head of the so-called China House that was set up at the State Department, um, is moving on to his next Foreign Service assignment, um, and and there are going to be other departures as well. Both and Colin House. Call Colin well, Call is leaving as well, right? Colin uh, Call, the Under Secretary of Defense, left. Now that's happens to be anybody knows Stanford University. Uh, you know they have a hard rule on two years. I remember Steve Krasner. Right. You know, you, two years and you're out. Um, so he did his he did his tour and he moved on. But others are leaving, um, and you'll hear some more announcements at the White House uh, in in State Department in Defense. Uh, and that's on top of the fact that now we have this rotation of our defense officials who may not be able to be confirmed, whether that's NSA and Cyber Command or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, so there are a lot of important uh, gaps that are opening up. Um, and that, that unfortunately, is, is going to be uh, another sign that the Biden administration is going to have difficulty uh, delivering. And so, so what we just saw in the G7 and what we just saw uh, through all the uh, diplomacy of the president's rather successful trip, even though it was truncated, um, a very successful time also for Prime Minister Kishida in Japan as the host of a lot of these meetings, uh, tremendous 
uh, emphasis on what we have accomplished as allies and partners because it's it's that's as good as it gets right now. I mean, we're not. It's going to be really hard to deliver, uh, even more so in the next uh, year and a half. Um, but I do think the um, you know the Chinese also just released in the Journal of Test and Measurement Technology that uh, you know great uh, journal uh, the, the disclosure that they had um, the PLA had with a couple of dozen hypersonic missiles categorically destroyed the USS Ford supercarrier every time. Um, and you're thinking, okay, well, you know, this is a somewhat contrived uh, simulation. It's very self-serving, um, but it does validate the cost exchange ratio of missiles over expensive platforms like a supercarrier. Uh, and it warns the Americans, it warns Taiwan and everybody else in the region that the best assets the Americans can put in theater in a crisis are going to be vulnerable to China's growing capabilities. And now you add in the Volt Typhoon intelligence collection, and you can see how China is just inching forward and saying, look, we are the growing power. We are going to displace America. Give us our way or else. And that's uh, and, and that's one of the big challenges. So this is no time to slacken off uh, on our defense side, on our intelligence, uh, or with our confirmations in the Congress, uh, you know, when, when China's growing like this, and I think Chairman Gallagher and others know this well, hopefully we'll get a budget and hopefully they'll be traveling again. I do know there are a lot of great Taiwan officials in town this week for private consultations. The Codel, um, uh, right, we're, we were going to have an important trip. It was going to be uh, to Taiwan. You said Taiwanese leaders are uh, in the United States, which is convenient. Uh, what's the negative uh, impact uh, of, you know, important lawmakers, important trip, right? I mean, we saw this where the president of the United States was supposed to go to Papua New Guinea and he canceled it. He was supposed to go to Sydney and he canceled it, right? It, it's sort of a tangible impact, right, on America's high-end diplomacy around the world, uh, this sort of manufactured crisis in Washington everybody's dealing with. Well, I, I was concerned that the U.S. would take uh, a blow to its influence over the president having to truncate a trip that he had advertised uh, being the first president to go to Papua New Guinea and then go on to the Australian hosted uh, leaders of the Quad. Uh, and that although that didn't happen uh, in Sydney, uh, the Quad meeting. Um, and although the president didn't go to Papua New Guinea, Secretary Blinken did. The Quad meeting happened in Japan. And at the end of the day, actually, the U.S. did pretty well with the diplomacy, right. uh, given given the president's schedule. Again, the Hiroshima G7 postmortem, you have six highlights, right? One is that Zelensky kind of the roadshow garnered the F-16s and fresh support. Ukraine, you know, in G7 has Ukraine's back, said President Biden. So that was an important statement of the interconnectivity between European and Asian security again. Secondly, and the Taiwan Strait issue was once again very clearly reaffirmed by these countries, the G7 plus essentially. And China gets that message. Thirdly, the countering economic coercion, without mentioning China by name, but you know everything but name, you've got the European Union noticing China's trade squeeze on Lithuania over its Taiwan support, and you've got the Americans uh, rallying Asian allies on, on countering economic coercion. That's an important framework, even though it's just a coordination mechanism and the details are still you know found wanting. Um, it's still an important sign. Uh, the fact that you have uh, the um, quadrilateral security dialogue happen in J Japan and go off very well, and they have a, a new announcement on submarine cable security, for instance, which is critically important, um, and you had successful bilateral summits, U.S.-Japan, trilateral U.S.-Japan-Korea, um, all of that was really good. And I think Prime Minister Kishida may actually call an early election now because he's so popular. 
Yeah, he also announced that he's you know, sending 100 transport vehicles. Uh, they're easing the export rules, as I've talked about before in this program, to Ukraine, which is a, a new uh, a, a sort of a new departure for the LDP. Um, and I, you have um, you, you do have Comato, the coalition um, partners of LDP for the last 24 years uh, defecting, though. So they're, they're paying a price for some of what they're doing on on not just the arms export rules, but it has to do with. Uh, other parts of the voice that Komodo has in the coalition. Nonetheless, uh, Kishida may be going to uh, Vilnius now for the NATO summit. Um, he's on a roll, and this is very right. successful for him, and I think it was very successful for the president. But, um, as I say, it's going to get harder from here on out in terms of the U.S. administration trying to deliver on some of these issues. Where A lot of this is going to be played out will be on the technology war, the chip war. So you've got uh, you know, the Micron ban, Micron technology ban, Although some people are saying it's more symbolic than significant compared to the U.S. and the Japanese and the Dutch really putting a, a block on the most advanced technology for uh, for, for for microchips uh, going to China, um, but this war could escalate, and I think that's where um, you've got a lot of pressure coming back from our allies and allies' business, Samsung, SK. You know, uh, but uh, right. companies in Europe as well. It's, there's going to be a lot of pressure here on the administration over where to draw the line on on de-risking. And there's a lot of people pushing pushing back on the administration. So you worry about the dilution of the pressure that the administration has helped to build up with a coalition to pressure China on both technology competition, but also on containing and deterring a conflict. Um, and, and it was uh, fascinating to see Warren Buffett right selling his stake in TSMC, uh, arguing that Taiwan, Taiwan is no longer a safe place to do business. Right. And so that is, well, you know, and he can certainly see that from that uh, standpoint. But it is uh, it, it is uh, interesting how what impact that will have. Dov, you've been very patient, Jim. Let me just very quickly ask you uh, how much. Um, how are Europeans looking uh, at all of this and how much is the NATO summit actually, uh, you know, as much as it's going to be about Russia, actually going to be about Asia? Because as Patrick sort of noted, it's pretty brazen to put into a journal of measurement. Ooh, 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 look at my hypersonic missile strike that can sink the American supercarrier, right? Yeah, you know, that's it's an interesting question. My The thing about Vilnius is, is NATO's been pretty tight-lipped about anything that's going to happen there. Um, Aside I, uh, from the new defense planning, right? I was getting ready to say exactly the, the, the new the new operation the operational plan that Shape is putting together, and you know, and they've been pretty tight lipped about that anyway. And so I'm not sure what it is that they're going to announce uh, that uh, is new uh, and that actually helps us understand it. But when it comes to China, um, I, I'm sure they're going to have something to say. There will be something there. Will it be something new? Will it be something that you know that moves the needle? Is it something that shows uh, more unity uh, to try to make up from what Macron said. I mean, are there is there going to be something along those lines? I maybe something in the communique, uh, but I don't think it'll be noticed. Uh, I think it'll be a nuanced thing, and and I I I think China just isn't going to be on the main stage. I do think it's going to be the operational plan, and maybe something else. But I tell you, Vilnius still is a bit of a black hole for me. Uh, in, in, interesting indeed. Dove, uh, so much uh, to talk about. Let's start uh, with Turkey, right? We uh, There were a lot of hopes uh, that Erdogan was going to lose. Uh, he had polled well. Uh, the right wing uh, didn't get an outright majority. So this Sunday, there'll be another election. But 5% or so went to parties further right than Erdogan. Uh, so they're not going to go uh, to the uh, uh, more liberal bureaucrat. Um, what 
you know, and at this point, Erdogan has been leading Turkey longer uh, than Kemal Ataturk. Um, ultimately, what are the implications and what does this mean for Turkey? Because many people have bluntly made the case, Turkey doesn't, Turkish democracy doesn't survive this. And it looks like Turkish democracy is not going to survive this. Well, um, let me first deal with Turkish democracy surviving. You've got to remember, this is a country that was taken over at least three times to my recollection by the military and democracy returned. So uh, let's not write that off, even if uh, uh, Mr. Erdogan is around for quite a few more years. Uh, The reason he's going to win in part, maybe in large part, is because the head of the Nationalist Alliance, a man named Sinan Erdogan, who uh, had pulled out uh, of the initial vote, now through his support behind uh, behind Erdogan. And that's and that's going to tip the balance, uh, which, uh, of course, creates all kinds of problems, particularly for the Swedes. Now, Mr. Orban this week. Uh, said that he will not support Swedish entry to NATO. It's going to be a disappointment in Vilnius. I suspect that he uh, had, or uh, or if he didn't have the information, he pretty much was sure of it, that uh, Mr. Erdogan was going to win and that Erdogan will not support the Swedes coming in. And between the two of them, there's just no way Sweden comes in, which creates a real problem because now you've got all the other Scandinavian states part of NATO, and yet Sweden with its very capable military and its close ties to the United States, not joining NATO. On the other hand, Ireland of all places is now debating whether they should join NATO, uh, which is quite remarkable. They were neutral in World War II. We know all the reasons behind their uh, bitterness against the UK, and yet they're now thinking about it because they're worried about the safety of their undersea cables and who would cut them. As we know, there was an incident and the Russians, of course, denied it. Um, Moving on, if you'd like, uh, to Israel, uh, the big story there is that uh, Mr. Netanyahu got his budget, uh, which means he can now turn to uh, his so-called judicial reform. And in that budget, he gave the ultra-Orthodox $1.6 billion. That's with a B, not with an M. And they were already going to get 1.4, but that wasn't good enough for them. So they demanded another $165 million and they got it. And so now they're going to have a very joyous Shavuot. Oh, they're going to have a wonderful time. They'll be popping the kosher champagne. Um, But the real issue, of course, now is uh, Parliament's certain certain to approve it, uh, the budget that is, is what now happens with judicial reform because the demonstrations are continuing. And speaking about demonstrations, they're still going on in Iran. They're not getting the same kind of uh, publicity because we're focusing on so many other things uh, that we've talked about on this podcast. But they're still there. And there are a lot of analysts who are beginning to say, that this could be the beginning of the end for the regime, not in the immediate future, not in a year or two, but you know what, maybe in five. And because we're talking about a supreme leader that's aging and we're talking about the fact that some 25 to 30 percent of Iranian women are simply not covering their hair anymore, even when they have meetings with foreigners, that's a big change. That's a big difference. And so who knows? Um, but uh, let me uh, ask, uh, 
uh, right? I mean, Iranian friends, um, you know, tell me that the, you know, the government is still remarkably brutal uh, and that folks are afraid of the government. And there are very, very uh, harsh uh, crackdowns. And so some of them are not as hopeful now as, as they were uh, before. Um, the United States Navy uh, well, has been up. It's, it, it's kind of bimodal, if you will. The religious police are still doing their thing. But you cannot deny that uh, the women are clearly right. defying them. And so both things are going on simultaneously. Um, one other thing, because we've, we've talked about the G7, um, uh, Prime Minister Sunak has just announced that they're going to close out these Confucius Institutes in Britain. Um, there was a lot of pushback on that before. Uh, but again, I think this is just another uh, indication that uh, the Europeans, uh, including the British, uh, are just getting more and more nervous about what Beijing is up to. Uh, let me just ask you uh, one question about Iranian uh, piracy. I think it's three uh, large ships that uh, Iranian forces have captured under contrived rules, uh, you know, or contrived uh, reasons in international waters. The Fifth Fleet uh, and the United States Navy is bolstering its capability in the region. Uh, the United States Coast Guard is also very active there. Uh, um, you know, how how does the international community need to be countering this? Uh, and is this merely a presence uh, issue? Is it a tactics issue? Is, you know, what are what are some of the things that have to happen to change the vector here? Because, I mean, this is just literally robbery on the high seas. I mean, it's literally piracy. Well, it is. But the, the problem, of course, is that we're stretched thin anyway. And I think the la I don't think the international community is going to do anything unless we take the lead. And uh, quite frankly, we are so preoccupied with all the things we've just talked about, whether it's Ukraine or Guam uh, or generally what the Russians and the Chinese are up to, that the last thing we want to do is have a, another confrontation with Iran. And uh, it's been publicly reported that, uh, you know, we've had 80 some odd incidents of attacks on American troops and we've only responded four times. Uh, guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have a very good Memorial Day uh, weekend. Hope you uh, all have a very good Shavuot, uh, a, a, a great holiday. May everybody be joyous uh, and festive. Dove, I know you're going to be celebrating in, in fine form uh, with your uh, family. And a quick programming note, the business roundtable that's normally on Sundays is going to be on Monday, Memorial Day, after which we'll resume our normal schedule. Very spe special thanks to all of you for joining us and a special thanks to Bell for making this podcast possible and hope everybody has a very good Memorial Day weekend.